I'm Phaedra Polychronis. And I'm Sarah Goldblatt. And this is Low Point, the podcast about hitting rock bottom and what comes next. I'm going to die. This is this is how it ends. I had nothing. Then I, I got even worse. I felt more and more isolated from everyone around me and I'm getting sadder and sadder about it. That sort of sent me into a tailspin. Everyone has a dark chapter. Today, we're going to talk to Mel Shimkovitz, a writer and actor. Mel's going to talk about her first love, first heartbreak, and the deepest depths of her loneliness. Mel, thanks for coming in. The idea is super open-ended, right? The idea is just for you to start telling us about one of the low points you've experienced. Or many, if she yeah. feels mean. Totally. Yeah. It can mm. be it can be like a ripple effect. It can be like a shock and then multiple aftershocks. Okay. Yeah, I got one. Um, so this past weekend I was up north feeling probably like the best I've ever felt in my life. I feel like I'm more I'm at a major high point right now. I felt the you know, Mount Everest between where I was then and where I am now. I found myself at a high peak on Potrero Hill. No, delete that. I found myself in Dolores Park watching all the tech nerds, and I recalled my lowest point, which was about 16 years ago in the same park when I thought for sure my life is over. And I didn't have a cell phone at the time, but if I had, I probably would have Googled painless ways to die. It was dark. So we'll rewind a little bit. I was living in Kansas, um, and I went to school there, to college. I was 20 years old when I met my first girlfriend, and it was probably the only person in Kansas I could have even possibly dated that would have been at all in my realm. Her name was Taylor, and I was in love with her, like obsessed. I saw her around. I only knew her name was Taylor, and I remember I worked at the theater that summer, and I looked through the phone book in Lawrence, Kansas, trying to figure out what her last name was. This was like 98. I don't know if the listening audience can recall that long ago, but... Even to check your email, you had to log into like an MS DOS program. I'm the oldest one in the room. You guys are looking at me like, what is that? Um, And um, (laughs) I finally ran into her in a bar. We spent like two months pretending we were just really fun friends who were infatuated with each other before anything happened. And then still, it was like pretty secret. Kansas wasn't exactly the most friendly environment for a gay person. So. After school was over, we decided we were going to move to San Francisco because I was, like, obsessed with the beats, you know, and I was, like, sure that San Francisco was going to be this, like, magical place for us to go. She got into school there. She had a job on a political campaign. This is 2000. So we go to San Francisco, me, Taylor, and my ex-boyfriend, Damon, we end up living in the basement of Oblivion Youth Hostel. Damon and I have, like, nothing to do there. We're, we studied theater in college, and we were like, we're going to be artists here, not realizing that this was the height of the dot-com boom, and all the artists had left in mass exodus to Portland, like, earlier that year. Um, so there we were, just wandering around. We finally got a job working in the box office of this really cheesy theater called Theater in the Square. But... 
Sam Shepard was about to produce a play there. We ended up getting to work on that production. By getting to work, I mean like collecting needles filled with Fountain of Youth drugs from Nick Nolte's room um, and escorting him around, getting different hot vegan lunches every day for Woody Harrelson, like things like that. The life of a theater artist, basically. <laughs> and uh, vegan. All yeah. Night Eve, so. <laughs> exactly. So the whole time we're there, I make one friend that isn't one of the two that I came with. And um, let's call her Hecuba. <laughs> um, no, that's actually kind of a cool name. Let's call her Beth. That was her name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't really had any lesbian friends in Kansas or ever in my life before. And then here was one. And she was kind of masculine presenting. And that was new for me, too, because up until then, I'd just been like a lovable weirdo. I hadn't known anybody else like me. So I had this one friend, and she would take me to these these uh, these really uh, kind of exciting coming from Kansas, like a gay club. We would go to these 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 parties called like Fairy Butch parties. We would um, I would she was a drag king performer, which I don't know if you guys know, but in that era was like when you would like take your pubic hair and and glue it to your to your upper lip and you're like a drag performer that's all it took Whoa. yeah yeah and then you'd have to like take off your cl- usually you, it would also involve like taking off your shirt and then you'd have a binder underneath and like maybe you'd take that off maybe you wouldn't so it'd be like real gender bending but coming from Kansas this was like a revelation I couldn't believe it um, I quickly found out that as far as the gay community went I thought they were gonna welcome me with open arms and really no I wasn't like butch enough I wasn't political enough. I ate meat. I smoked cigarettes. I drank booze. I wasn't drinking my own piss or eating raw food. I wasn't in the right place at the right time, basically. Um, I should have been there about 40 years earlier. It wasn't a chill zone. Um, But I had this one friend. I went home for Thanksgiving to Chicago, and my girlfriend, I had said to her, you know, what are you going to do for Thanksgiving? And she was like, oh, I'm totally alone. I don't have anything to do. And I was like, I went to my friend Beth and I said, could you hang out? You know, could you invite my girlfriend to Thanksgiving? She doesn't have anything to do. Oh, yeah, sure. She can come to Thanksgiving with us. Um, And that seemed like a nice thing to do. I come back from my trip. Taylor picks me up and I look over at her and I said, you're not in love with me anymore, are you? And it was like you could drive a truck through the silence. Um, She finally answered and she was like, no, this is my first love. So right then and there, I was like, I'm going to die. This is this is how it ends. I had nothing. Go back familiar. to this tiny little room that we're sharing in the basement of this Bolivian youth hostel. Probably take a bunch of bong hits. Cry. I think I cried for like the next week. Um, the crying only stopped when I put together that the reason why she had fallen out of love with me and was leaving me was because she was carrying on an affair with my friend Beth from the box office. Yeah, could see that coming. And I found this out. I know, I didn't really I, can't, I didn't really bury the lead enough there. <laughs> but I found this out because I was taking the bus to work, one of like five buses I had to take to get to where I worked, and I saw them walking out of Beth's apartment. Oh. When Wait, I thought, at what point? Like the week after we broke up when I thought that she was at school. 
It was like early in the morning, and I saw her walking out of her apartment. So as you're taking the bong hits and she's explaining things to you, it's just she's out of love with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there was no. But like the truth is, neither we were each other's first loves, each other's first girlfriends. Like we didn't have any experience with anything else, and I think. I like was a loser. I wasn't doing anything. I was just working and smoking weed and eating Thai food takeout. Like I wasn't doing anything. I was living in this city where everybody else my age was had cell phones and was driving Beamer convertibles. And I was like, I had like a kind of like a man purse that had like a built-in pocket just for my disc man. Memories. Yeah, it was like that. And Beth didn't. Beth was like fully crystallized. She had a like. car. She was like big in the drag king scene. She had a lot of friends. Shock resistant. Yeah. Pubic hair all over her face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pubic hair all over her face. And she was like, and this is like maybe an insider gay thing, but she was like a stud, you know? She like knew how to be a butch lesbian and what to do and how to act and how to hold herself. And I've never really done it right. Like, my hair sometimes is on point, but the rest of it is just like, I'm just sort of doing my own thing. And that's a place where in that community, it was really like you're butch or you're femme and you know how to do this, or you know how to do that, or you're like kind of nothing, I was sort of kind of nothing. But so in that week when I didn't know that that was going on between the two of them, I was confiding in my friend Beth about what was going on. And one night we got really drunk and she, and we slept together, which is like, major butch on butch crime and it's the only time it's ever happened to me but it was like I was so sad and she was so aggressive and I was like and I remember waking up the next day being like that was the worst thing I've ever done in my life I also felt so bad and then when I found when I saw that thing about Taylor it wasn't just that she had left me for this other person but that this other person was like playing us like we were two country bumpkins and we had been just like played um so by the king. yeah, by the drag king. Um, so then it was just also humiliating, and um, I had no money and I had nowhere to go. So I ended up in that same bed, sleeping in that same bed with my now ex girlfriend for another two months. She wasn't spending evenings with Beth at this point. The Beth thing didn't really take off. She was. Going to school in Santa Rosa sometimes. I was quoting in the air when I said that. Ugh, but quotes are hard to Yeah, it was all just so bad. And I this is also when I I had never drank up until this point. This is when I discovered whiskey. My friend Damon, who I was now really my only friend, um, he was a real big fan of whiskey and then he introduced me to it and I would just like take a bottle of whiskey and go to Dolores Park, which there were no nerds there at that time. Um, it was just gay cruising and drug addicts. And and maybe like five other like wayward lesbians like me drinking from a bottle, <laughs> pondering suicide. Like there's no there's no joke I can even make about it right now because I was so I was like this is it this is I have nothing. I was 21 years old. I had no adults in my life to give me any advice or lend me any money. And yeah, and I was just and I was just stuck there, and was really glad that I was too lazy to kill myself because that's really all it was I was just like I was I was like too lazy I just couldn't even do it I was like I couldn't be troubled to go to the library and look it up I remember thinking like 
I know there's like some kind of medicine I can take or something I can do. I just have to end this. I was in so much pain. Anybody who goes through depression here can understand. Like I physically was in so much pain. I hurt so bad. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't really even get myself to work. I couldn't get myself out of that bed that I shared with my ex-girlfriend. I was so heartbroken and I couldn't figure out how somebody could not love me. Um, I still haven't figured it out. I'm still trying to work that out. I just want to reiterate that this is before cell phones, smartphones, or me even having a cell phone. We didn't even have a landline at the house, and I don't believe. And um, even to communicate with my best friend, to tell her I wanted to kill myself, I had to find a pay phone. Like look through, and find her number. Yeah, and it and takes initiative. It took a lot of initiative. There was a pay phone in the lobby of the theater where I worked. So I would stand in the lobby with all my coworkers coming in, just crying on the phone. One of my coworkers being the one who stole my girlfriend. We continued to work together wow. for months in a tiny room. Were you speak on speaking terms with any of the two perpetrators? Um, I ended I up being on speaking that. terms with, with the ex-girlfriend because we realized we'd both been played, and we'd been played by, like, not even a cute girl. She just, like, ruined us. And I, in fact, was like, I'm, I'm not gay. I, this brought out so much of my own homophobia and, like, self-hatred because I was like, if this is what being gay is... Because the other people in the community that I talked to about it were like, yeah, it happens. And I was like, what the fuck do you yeah. mean this happens? Right. This can't happen. And they're like, don't worry, you guys will all be friends, like having a beer in a few months. That's how it works with lesbians. And I was like, that's fucked up. Um, but it's actually true. That is how it works with <laughs> lesbians. But my day-to-day at that, during that time was uh, waking up in the youth hostel next to my ex-girlfriend not having social media to check or anyone to reach out to, just like, you know Charlie Brown? So did you get up? Just get up, just drag my bones out of bed, take a shower, grab my disc man and a couple of CDs, (laughs) walk up the hill to the bus, take like three more buses to get into the city, get to the lobby. I'd lean against the wall and I'd call one of my friends and I'd cry and a girl would walk in and see me crying and I would stand there and want her to see me crying and then do it reverse to get back at home um, maybe eat my roommate's lentil loaf with a lot of ketchup, watch The Simpsons bong rip, Simpsons bong rip more food Jack Daniels, outside, death cigarettes sleep and And were you able to sleep? I smoked so much weed so yeah (laughs) so like a baby yeah like a baby I slept like a baby like a fat baby because all I did was like eat and smoke weed Um, that was it I just had no I couldn't see that there was a goal to my life I couldn't see that there was a point I had grown up thinking I was like going to be some special performer and everybody was going to really welcome me everywhere I went and I had just hit this dead end and I couldn't see my way out I literally had nowhere else to go. I was in this major abyss for about two months, and then my friend, my best friend who lived in New York said, get on a plane and come to New York. So I had never been to New York. My mother grew up there, told us horror stories about how it was the worst place in the world, so I never really thought I would go there or end up there. 
I just showed up and I was like, this looks like uh, Sesame Street because that's where they filmed a lot of the exteriors for Sesame Street. I got a job at Miramax right away because my friend's brother worked there and I lied and said I knew how to use the Avid. But I loved New York. I remember sitting in Central Park. I would go to Central Park on Sundays. I would sit on Sheep's Meadow and I would write in my journal and I would look at these other groups of friends on their blankets, drinking their wine spritzers, playing frisbee. Um, And I would just think, I would be a really good friend to you guys. I would try and will them to invite me over. Just like, will you be my friend? Will you be my friend? If you were my friend, I would, you know, remember your birthday and make you elaborate mix CDs. And I would like, you know, meet you anywhere you needed at any time if you needed to process shit. Like, I knew I could be a good friend. I'd be like, will that Frisbee land near me? And then I'll get up and I'll throw it back. I played Ultimate in high school. I know how to throw a Frisbee. You know, so the, just like anything. The Frisbee spritz crowd. Oh my God, this is actually the that. sadder part. The, the having no friends part is way sadder than getting dumped. The having no friends. I had no friends. This is the most depressing conversation I've ever had, and it's being recorded. I don't think I've talked about I don't this think in this 16 is, years. But I actually don't think this is depressing. It's not yeah. depressing? It sounds pretty normal. <laughs> I mean, no, I, mean I, not, I thought, like, should I talk about, you know, sitting in hospice with my so. mother? Should I talk about, you know, being in the hospital and thinking I was going to die. Like, you know, there are all these other things, but there was something about this period because it was the first major depression. Yeah. After that, you realize you bounce back. That first heartbreak, you think you're going to die, then you fall in love again. And the next time you have heartbreak, you remember or somebody reminds you. But you're not gonna it die. gets better. Yeah, you're not going yeah. to actually die and you will meet another person. I didn't know that yet. Mm-hmm. Something about that first heartbreak, that first major suicidal depression, that period that you don't know yet that it's possible that it'll change. Your brain can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So it sticks around a lot longer, which is amazing. But it's it's also sad. You never fall in love like that again. And you're never that happy again because you know what the pain feels like. It's like the first time that you jump off of something high and land on your knees you're like, oh, that's, I'm that never going to do so that again. Wonderful. Yeah, but that moment when you take <laughs> off, before you know yeah. you're not going to fly, or, or like that your knees, like that it actually hurts when you do that, I mean, it's so euphoric. Yeah. But never again. If you talk to me next week, and I'm going to want to fucking kill myself again, but today I feel pretty good. Yeah. I told you I had a Claritin for breakfast, so I'm actually feeling really good right now. But it's also a thing that I haven't spoken about. You know, you have your stories, and the more you tell a story, the less you personally identify with it, I guess. But this is one of those things that it's, first of all, not that interesting. It's not like talking about, you know, the time my leg got cut off when I was on acid and a bus drove by. This didn't happen to me. I just, we, we both <laughs> just looked down to make sure Mel has both her legs. I know, I do. It happened to a friend of mine, though. That's a good story. Um, I don't. It's not that kind of story. It's like the, like... My first love left me for somebody else. It's just that story. But we all have that story. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, because it usually happens when you're young. Yeah. It is probably your lowest point. Yeah, I that mean, first, well, the first terrifying. low point. It's really destabilizing. Yeah. It's like you, you didn't, like, there's a shattering that's happening because you don't, you're, like, physically scared of what is happening to you. Yeah. You've never experienced that You've before. never experienced that sadness before. Loss and you've never experienced the bounce back. Like that day 
when you're by yourself doing something, you're walking down the street, you're holding some books you just bought, the sun hits you, and you think, oh, I feel good again. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That moment when you're like, oh, right. Like I'm still waiting. The clouds. <laughs> Back on course. Back on hijack, course. Hijack averted. Yeah. Or at least you see it in the distance. You see like a tiny light. You're like, oh, right. But at that point, when you don't know that there is light, when light isn't even a story that exists, when it's never happened before, there are no stories. You don't have a personal story. You haven't heard a story about somebody else. Like There are no stories to, to lean on there. You don't have an idea of temporality if you don't have somebody in your life who's, you know, reincarnated themselves a few times. You don't know that you get to do that. Yeah. Shortly after I got to New York, a friend of mine gave me a bunch of Alan Watts CDs and I started listening to him and like he became like my grandpa. He became like my the older person in my life who was giving me advice on how to live. And I would just like listen to those all the time. I was definitely listening to Alan Watts when I was on the end train going over the bridge on the way to work watching the first plane hit the first tower on September 11th. Somebody goes, Holy shit. The building was like still sitting on, it was like kind of still sitting on there on the top of it. It was a pandemonium. I mean, it took a while for people to really be freaking out. I mean, even down there, because I worked down there, so I had to get down there that day because I was so afraid to be late. I mean, I worked for Harvey Weinstein. I was like very like afraid oh. to be late. Um, no, <laughs> people, you can't really take something like that in. I mean, I definitely had been wondering if New York was the place for me like the day before. And by the next day, there was just no leaving. Everybody was trying to leave, and it was like me and my friends. I think that was also the first time I realized I had a community of friends there because we all got together. Everybody came over to my house in Astoria, and you're just hearing the fighter jets go above us and and just, like, drinking and talking and watching TV. Um, that sort of community sorrow, which is another good thing to talk about about sadness is like community sadness. I'm talking about the solipsistic sadness of heartbreak, but the community sadness of that when you're sharing it with other people, it's almost the opposite. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I say, it sounds weird to say, but September 11th, like I wasn't going to go anywhere after that. I was a New Yorker. I had a life there. Like that you gave me a around. life there. Yeah, definitely. And at that point I was sitting in an apartment with probably 15 wayward souls, young kids, mostly from Kansas, some from Chicago, that had all found their way that, there that day, and some spent nights, many nights there. Um, and I had become one of those groups of people in Sheep's Meadow playing Frisbee, yeah, with my friends. I thought, like, this is it, this is my life, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, this is what I want to do. So that was probably the end of it. September 11th was the end of my depression. <laughs> Nice. Wow. Let me oh. say that again. Let me give you a good sound bite. September 11th was when my depression lifted. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you were writing, like, an entry in the uh, dictionary, like, your assignment was to write out the definition um, to just low point, like, what is a low point? How would you define it in a couple sentences? Well, after this conversation, I think I would say that I define, I define a low point as I define a low point as the moment right before you get the information that it'll ever get better. I like it. Yeah. 
And in that way, I don't think I've hit a, I haven't had a lower point since, although I've had much worse things happen. Um, once you know that every story ends in a wedding with a good joke, that just becomes the ending, and you just look at the low points as the dark night of the soul, end of act two. But you know at the end of act three, everything will come together. So You're so good. Oh, is that good? <laughs> cool. I think you can edit that down to like a good five, tight five. For today's show, we'd like to thank Timothy Nordwin for letting us use his beautiful studio above the Silver Lake Reservoir. Derek Strick, our resourceful producer and editor. And of course, Mel, for opening up to us today. I am Phaedra Polychronis. I'm Sarah Goldblatt, and this has been Low Point.